you have your CISO on one hand, mm -hmm. and then the CEO reaches out, and then you have your legal team. I need to know this about the incident, and mm -hmm. they're all three different questions. That number one dysfunction is trust. Mm. If you go into any crisis arena, you have to have trust. Who is allowed into the war room? A lot of people talk about blameless post-incident reviews where you're not pointing fingers, you messed this up. It's all about collaboration. Who says tech can't be human? What is going on, everyone? Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again. We're going to be talking about cybersecurity today. Mm -hmm. Just me and you talking about what is this subject of cybersecurity, but more specifically about cybersecurity incidents. Mm -hmm. Cybersecurity incidents and incident commanders is really one of the most important aspects of cybersecurity from my perspective. I feel like when you're dealing with incidents, especially when you're on call, it could be one of the most demanding jobs in cybersecurity. Right. And what exactly is an incident? I've worked at many companies. I've even consulted with many companies. And everybody has all these definitions of what an incident is, what an alert is, what an event is. But let's just start with incident. Yeah. So what I think an incident is, is anything, an event that degrades or disrupts like business operations. At the high level, any incident, like whether you're talking about fire, you're talking about like some type of law enforcement incident, those are all disruptions in operations. But when we're thinking about cybersecurity, that is the stuff that's going to degrade the business from operating the way it should. And when you think about degradation of the business, like is that something that's going to distract people? Is that something that is going to lead to data being stolen? What, what exactly would you categorize and prioritize as like, this is something that needs my time and response? Yeah, so let's, let's look at an alert, right? Because mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of folks that get alerts and incidents confused. Oh, there's an alert. We have an incident, right? right but that's right. not really the case. You can have an alert and it be something that's informational, something that, oh, just good to know, no action needed. It's just something to keep an eye on. When you get to the point where it meets a threshold to become an incident, where you have to spin up the war room, incident commander, which we'll talk about here in a second, that's when you have to bring all parties together, all hands on deck. We have to solve this incident because maybe it's a high critical vulnerability, maybe mm -hmm. it's some type of intrusion in our network, maybe it's a misconfiguration that's called causing an outage. It really could be any one of those things. But I think that there has to be a threshold for it to become an incident. I know why you love incident response and incidents in general, and that's because of the most important role of an incident is an incident commander. Mm -hmm. It's like the quarterback. They're the one yep. that is going to lead the team to the promised land. And one of the strongest lessons I learned about incident response was through you. We used to work together at a financial technology company and I was incident commander once. Yeah. I was incident commander and there was one thing you were just telling me over and over again. Mm -hmm. Ron, what's the status? Yeah. What's the status? Yep. And then I would reach out to everybody, find out the status. But I think that everyone, you know, many organizations look at uh, incident commanders differently and mm -hmm. just like they look at incidents differently. So how would you describe what an incident commander is? So incident commander is the one that's pushing that incident to closure. 
they're the one that's just pushing that ball for us. So when I was saying, hey, check in on the status, because if you send out different tasks for people to do, sometimes they might be stuck. Sometimes they might have new findings, but they're just not reporting that communication back. So always checking in with the team, understanding where exactly you are in that incident is super important for incident commander. They're the informed captain for the incident. They have the power in the incident. They have the understanding. They know everything that's going on during the incident. They're sending out tasks. They're delegating. They really have the most power when it comes to incident. Even if you had someone that's like, say, the CEO stepping in and say, oh, you know, I'm going to take over the incident. That's not really how an incident is run. Mm -hmm. That incident commander is going to be the one is like the end all be all for the incident, at least for the time that they're incident commander. Right. And uh, one of the funny things about my involvement in incidents in general is I've always tried to automate incidents from end to yep. end. And mm-hmm. That's always been our argument, but we won't we won't <laughs> get into that right now. But the things that I would do when uh, automating incidents is first spinning up a room or an environment and mm-hmm. a, a ticket even for everyone to track the incident. Mm-hmm. And I think a big piece of incident commandership or even running an incident is communication. Huge. But what are some of the other tenets of incident commander? Like, what are some of the responsibilities and how do they even start to look at communicating with other team members that are going to help close it out? I love that you touched on the communication piece because that's honestly the most important role of an incident commander. They don't have to have all the context for what's going on in the incident. The job of the incident commander is to pull all the right people into the room and no more, no less to handle the incident. Because if you think about it, People in cybersecurity, people in technology in general get paid a lot of money. And if you have a lot of folks that are in this war room, you're burning a lot of cash just to solve this incident that could be solved in a much cheaper way. Ensuring the right people are in the room, ensuring there aren't too many people in the room. But a lot of folks get confused about what an incident commander does. Some people think they have to have all the context. They don't. The incident commander is going to be the one that's asking the right questions to get to closure. That's why I like being an incident commander, because I don't have to know everything about a website. I don't have Mm. to know everything about a technology. I don't have to know about vulnerabilities. I just have to know what questions do I need to ask to make sure that everyone's moving in the right direction. Right. Cataloging all that information, having a war room, having a place where everything is recorded, but also like maintaining a ticket so that when you do something like a post-incident review, you can kind of walk down the entire timeline of that incident and say, okay, here's where we might have done better. Here's something we did great. Here's something that we need to solve for at a later time. There's just a lot of things that happens when you're collecting all that data, but then also ensuring that you have the right people doing the right things. Where do you think people go wrong with being an incident commander? Like what is like the one thing that you should try to avoid or you should keep in the back of your mind? There's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of things that you should avoid or keep in the back of your mind. Number one, you have to have an incident commander. If you have a committee of folks that are trying to work towards a common goal, sure, that might work in theory, but you might have competing ideas. You might have competing priorities. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of things that happens when you have a group of people that are trying to lead an incident. But when you have someone that is the informed captain, it's on their shoulders to take all that information in and say, hey, this is the way we're going to move. Everything from like figuring out what severity. So when you look at an incident, a lot of times you look at severity one to three. Some people do zero to three. Mm -hmm. But that severity one is the highest severity. That's like all hands on deck. Perhaps we need to bring in comms and lawyers because we have to make a statement because we just lost all of our customer data to something that's like a a Sev 3 that's like, ah, you know, this is 
bad, but it's not too bad. We don't have to throw the kitchen sink at this situation. Right. One of the things that you do when you first come into a war room is really figure out what's going on. Like, what's the scope? What happened? What are all the details? Yeah. And then figure out which direction you need to take that's most important. Sometimes, like I've done this in the past, I've been asking questions in an incident, and then someone said, hey, well, what if? What about this route right here? So for instance, if there's like some type of, of incident and we're thinking, oh, oh how do we respond to uh, the comms folks? Like, sure, that, that might be something that's important, but it might be more important to ensure that we understand like what is the the scope and severity of that incident first. Right. So if we lose a bunch of data and there's exposure, you definitely have to bring in a lawyer. So that might be the most important thing is figuring out, okay, what is the most important or the most damaging part of this incident? Mm. And then the incident commander will be the person that brings in the legal team, for instance, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And one of the things that comes to my mind, especially working in cybersecurity, is there's competing interests. Yep. Especially when you're on a small team. You might have a team that has maybe, let's say, 10 people. And five of those people are for security operations. Mm -hmm. And then five of those are for just building security within the technology. Maybe you have a product. And during an incident, the incident commander may have to pull on all 10 of those people yep. that have their own other set of problems outside of this incident. How do you communicate to people when you're the incident commander? Because I'm sure like there's times where you ask someone to do something, but then they bring up another project that they're working on, but that might not be the most important thing. Yeah, I would say when you're an incident commander, that's about as close to authoritarian as you can be. <laughs> and, and the, are you this, the boss? <laughs> you are the boss when it comes to this incident, for sure. Like I said, if, if the executive comes in and tries to take over, that's not how you do uh, incident response. You are the one that's like, hey, I'm going to push this to completion. But another thing that's important to realize as well is maybe you aren't the best incident commander for a particular incident. Mm. Maybe there's someone else that would either want to take over or should take over. And that's okay too. You could say like, hey, Sarah, you know, you know this a lot better than I do. You've had your incident commander training. Would you like to be incident commander? And they might say, yeah, or no, or, you know, keep it with you. And there might be even a situation where someone's kind of like edging in because they have the most context. And it could be incumbent upon the incident commander to be like, hey, do you want to be the incident commander? Sometimes you have to leave your ego at the door and just say, hey, I don't know everything about this. It might be more efficient and effective for someone else to lead it. Gotcha. And that's what I've seen for the most part is typically when an incident comes in, the incident commander is chosen. It's not that there is the same incident commander for all the incidents. Right. I, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> I mean, I, I did have an idea at one point to have a cadre of incident commanders that we're constantly on call. Right. So whenever something gets to a certain severity level that you bring in like the big guns, like if it's a SEV-1, you want your most experienced mm -hmm. incident commanders on that. But I could see an argument for everyone kind of sharing in the incident commander role. Uh, you just have to train people accordingly so they can handle those incidents. Yeah, I, I want to be a part of the SEAL team. That, that's <laughs> right, how the I SEAL feel. team. That would, <laughs> that would be legit. But there is a lot of stress that comes along with being on call like that because Incidents usually always happen on a Friday at the end yeah. of the day. Incidents happen during Christmas. Right. So I wouldn't I wouldn't go to it for the the glitz and glam. I would go to it if you feel like I want to be of service to the organization and here's a one way that I can contribute to it. I got to jump in for a second and say incidents happen due to the nature of our attack surface. Our sponsor and friends at NetSpy wanted us to ask you a question. 
Are you constantly wondering what else is on your attack surface? NestBuy has created an attack surface management platform to help you make sense of it all. NestBuy has a team of skilled pen testers that can help you find those critical vulnerabilities and become your partner in creating the right remediation game plan for you. To learn more about NetSpy, visit netspy.com forward slash HVM and tell them Hacker Valley sent you. Thank you, NetSpy, for sponsoring this episode. Now, let's get back to the topic of incident response. What is a real example of an incident? Yeah. Not an alert, not an event, but an incident, like especially one that you worked on. Yeah. So I worked on an incident where it, it was almost like being punched in the face because uh, we received word that there was a reporter that was about to put out information saying like, hey, your organization has an, potentially an exposed S3 bucket with all this information and all these things that were called like credentials. And so, of course, we're freaking out because mm. they're, they're going to push forward and put that information out there. So that is potentially front page news. So my job was to figure out, number one, okay, what is this data? Where did it come from? How did it get to this place? And then what do we tell the potential journalists about the scenario? Also, or, it was a journalist that reached It was out. a journalist, yeah. So what happens sometimes is you'll have journalists, you'll even have third-party firms where all they're, all they're doing is looking for S3 buckets <laughs> that are exposed to the internet and might potentially have sensitive data. And I mean, while it's terrible because obviously that's putting a company in a bad light, it also would help the organization because if they don't even know that S3 bucket is exposed, then it, it, it does give them a heads up that this is something that you need to solve. Right. But really just tr controlling, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say controlling the narrative because that makes it sound like you're sweeping <laughs> stuff under, under the rug, but making sure that you put your best forward as a company is super important, especially when it comes to potential leakages of sensitive data like credentials. Right. So it almost feels like in this very moment, you got to say something back. And I, I feel mm -hmm. like that's how I would respond to a reporter coming to me for my data, but also to my boss. Like if my manager needed information, I'd really want to make sure I get that back to them promptly. Uh, but in this uh, example, who were you reporting to? Like who does the incident commander send this information, their updates, their findings to? Yeah, it's usually you send it to the CISO and perhaps anybody that's in that executive chain that needs to understand. Mm. Uh, this particular incident, while it was pretty serious, it didn't get to the level where we had to involve the CEO. Uh, uh, we obviously did have to bring in legal. We had to bring in the comms team. We had to bring in a lot of folks. One of the crazy things about this particular incident was that all this information, this, this S3 bucket, was spun up years before I was even in the organization. Mm. All the people in the security team that were a part of that spin up of the that particular bucket had even moved to different orgs within the company. So no one really understood the context. And so people are having, oh, I think I remember this. So you're like going through tickets, you're trying to figure out all the stuff, which brings me back to that post-incident review. What's really cool about a post-incident review, which I think you should do just about every time, depending on how many incidents you have, but maybe even setting a threshold like all SEV1s and SEV2s uh, will do a post-incident 
incident review. Sev 3 will have just some type of smaller after action type thing. Mm -hmm. But when you have a Sev 1 or Sev 2 post incident review, you walk through everything that happened. You say what was good, what was bad, what could we do better? A lot of people talk about yeah. blameless post incident reviews where you're not pointing fingers, you messed this up or you messed this up. It's all about collaboration. It's all about training each other and moving everything forward. So when you have something like this, and it's like, oh my gosh, we, we had no idea what this information was. Maybe there's something you can do from a process perspective to make it so that th this isn't an issue again. Maybe you have a nice repository of data where like, oh, anytime we have like, a, we spin up an S3 bucket, it's mm -hmm. cataloged in this place right here. So right. stuff like that will keep these incidents from either happening again or at least being able to close it much faster. I can't imagine being the person that left that S3 bucket open. I'm not sure what data was in there, but I know for me, making a critical mistake, especially when it comes to configuration or storing sensitive information, I don't know how you wouldn't feel like you're the one to be blamed or the one to be responsible. Have you ever seen someone or a group try to like undersell the things that they were going through, the activities that they were going through that led to a vulnerability? So one thing I have seen, and I I think if I had to guess, I don't have data to back <laughs> this up, I think it's rampant. So one of the organizations I was doing incident response for, uh, like I was saying, you have to do a post-incident review for something that's like a SEV1 or a SEV2. Guess how many Sev 1s and Sev 2s people would spin up? They would push into that Sev 3 so right. they don't have to do the extra work. Mm -hmm. But I think that's short sighted because I'm sure everyone's strapped for time, but you have to really accurately depict like, is this actually a Sev 1? Because right. if it is a Sev 1, you have to ensure that the right people are in the room. I would push against anyone that's like, we're just going to make this a Sev 3 so we don't have to do extra work. I have seen that, yeah. <laughs> so let's say you have your CISO on one, one hand. Mm -hmm. They are asking for immediate response. I need to know this about the incident. Mm -hmm. And then the CEO reaches out. Mm -hmm. I need to know this about the incident. And then you have your legal team reaches out. I need to know this about the incident. And mm -hmm. they're all three different questions. Yep. How do you prioritize, like, who gets what when? You would prioritize based on your experience as an incident commander for one. You would also prioritize based on what you think the criticality is. Because like I said, if you're the incident commander, you're the one that's, that's calling the shots. You're pushing the direction. There's a lot of control that kind of comes with being an incident commander, but there's also a lot of responsibility. If I look at all three of those requests and I pick the wrong one and say this is the priority mm -hmm. and I leave the other two on the back burner and that was the wrong move, it's on me as the incident commander. I should have had better judgment about what was the next thing to do for an incident. I hear that a lot for um, companies that are looking for experience or new cybersecurity people mm -hmm. is one, can you be curious enough to find out the questions first that need to be answered? And mm -hmm. then two, do you have a good sense of judgment? Can you yep. respond on the dime and, you know, maybe have to make a audible that wasn't necessarily in your playbook? Yeah, I think that my background in threat intelligence probably set me up for success when it comes to incident response. Because number one, being in threat intelligence, you support incidents all the time. Yep. Number two, in threat intelligence, you're really focused on what are the questions that I'm asking from an analysis perspective to help me get to an answer. Being an incident commander isn't very different. You're asking the right questions to get to an answer. Mm -hmm. How do we understand what's going on? 
And then what are the steps we need to do to remediate the incident? Yeah. I think when you're working on an incident, especially severity one, severity mm -hmm. two, something that is going to effectively change the company forever. Mm -hmm. When you're dealing with something like that, you really get to see how the team works together. Yep. For me, I've always been the automation guy. I'm obsessed with it. I can't stop thinking about it. If you're yeah. talking about manual work, I might get a little zoned out. Maybe you have a distracted CISO who has many other things going on as mm -hmm. well. And you have your threat intel guy or your incident commander that's really hurting the cats. Mm -hmm. What have you seen and what can you say about functional versus dysfunctional team? What are some of the tenants there? That's a whole other can of worms. <laughs> but I think it's really important to bring up now because when you look at something like the five dysfunctions of a team, excellent book. Uh, if you don't have time to read the book, definitely check out any article about it. But that number one dysfunction is trust. Mm. If you go into any crisis arena, you have to have trust. Because if someone's going to be hesitant, if someone's going to completely disregard your order, then you're, you're going to be stuck in the water. Yeah. You, you have no power. You have no authority. So having that trust is super important. Also, organizations and teams need to feel safe. Mm -hmm. And they also have to have direction. If you are sitting on a call and no one's doing anything, no one's saying anything of note, you have to recalibrate, say, okay, I need to get these people moving forward in a direction. And maybe you have to spin out different work groups, like say, hey, you and you, I need you to go do X, Y, and Z, report back when this is done. Yeah. Hey, you and you, hey, I need you to work with the comms folks, give them the, all the details so they can craft the message for people out there in the world. And then the other thing, this is actually, this is one of the most important things about being, number one, a part of the team, Number two, being an instant commander, is having somebody that's helping keep track of all of the data. Sure, you can have some things like in chat, like you could have some automation where it's pulling all that information and putting into a ticket, yep. but having someone like a scribe, someone that's all they're doing is writing down all the context, they're writing down the questions, they're writing down the results, that's super, super important for any incident. Uh, one cool thing about working with teams and having that communication and practicing is you can do incident commander work without actually being an incident commander. Yeah. You could do something like we talked about back at Netflix. We would do Wheel of Fortune for the on-call. If there was no active incident going on, we'd have the on-call sit. We'd spin this wheel that had all these different <laughs> types of incidents that you'd have to solve, and you'd work through this imaginary thing. I took that practice, and we brought it to our next role where we were doing more security operations mm -hmm. stuff. It just gets that creative flow when you're thinking about incidents so you can get the practice that you need. The other thing that you can do is exposure to being in an incident. Maybe you can say, hey, I want to be a part of the incident commander cadre, Maybe I should just sit in shadow. I just want to sit in. I just want to listen. I want to see how an incident is run to get acclimated to what it actually entails. Because when I was first introduced to the concept, I'm thinking, oh, snap, I need to know every attack that could ever happen ever and, <laughs> and know all the answers. But that's not what an incident commander is. They are the ones that is pushing the process for incident closure. That's a, that's a lot to digest. And I want to go back, back, back for a second yep. and talk about teams. Yep. I've worked on many. I've worked individually a lot. And every time I'm working on a team, it feels like a different definition. Mm -hmm. But most people define team, you know, a group of people working towards a common goal. Mm -hmm. What context would you add on top of that, especially when you're thinking about cybersecurity, you're thinking about incident response mm -hmm. and being an incident commander? What is a team? A team is a group of individuals that have a common goal or mission. 
right? Mm-hmm. I think that's what a team is. You can look at it as the classic context of like a sports team, like, hey, we're here to win the game. Yeah. It's the same thing for incident response. It's the same thing for a security team. We're all a team because we're marching towards a more secure organization. We are all a team for, even if it's just for the incident, for a couple hours, we're all marching towards the closure of the incident. So anybody that's a group of individuals marching towards a common goal is a team. So that common goal is the resolution of the incident. Correct. So we talked about what a team is, especially that sounds like a a very effective team, but let's talk about a dysfunctional team Mm -hmm. because we know that that happens all the time. We spoke a little bit about the tenants, but let's get a little bit more into the meat. Yeah, let's talk about like the five dysfunctions of a team. Patrick Lanchoni, that's the big either book, uh, which Mm -hmm. there is a book out there, but you also watch a, a TED Talk, you could watch a video, you could read an article just to understand the tenants, but let's just go through all of them. Let's go backwards, because I think number one is the most important. So number five is inattention to results. Mm -hmm. So this is not focused on the end goal. This is not focused on what's going on right now. People are just kind of aimless. The next one is avoidance of accountability. It's like, hey, I didn't do it. <laughs> I'm not touching that, that. That's the person, right? Yeah. That that, that was like, I. This it's a step three. It's not mm, a step one yeah, or two. Yeah. Hey, mm, nope. <laughs> that's not me. That's not my job, uh, which can really mess up a team. Uh, lack of commitment. Lack of commitment to the mission. A lack of commitment to the mm. team. A lack of commitment to orders, for instance. When an uh, incident commander tells you something, you do it, right? You might say like, hey, I have an ulterior idea. You can bring it up, yep. but if the incident commander says, hey, this is the direction we're going, you might disagree, but you have to commit to that and march forward. Fear of conflict. If you're afraid of conflict, then there's not a lot of progress that you're going to have when it comes to inc- being an incident commander or an incident in general. Mm-hmm. When you're in, in an incident, sometimes you're going to have hard conversations. Right. You have to figure out what the problem is. If people are kind of skirting around an issue just because they don't want to have conflict, you might slow down the, the response to the incident. You might not even get to closure because someone's afraid to ask the right question. Right. And the number one, in my opinion, the number one dysfunction of a team is a lack of trust. When you don't trust someone, you're not going to try hard. You're not going to take risks because if, you're, if you know that that team is going to berate you for making a mistake, you're not going to try hard. You're not going to go that extra mile and, and try something different. You're going to play it safe because you're like, I'm not putting myself in the crosshairs of this organization, so right. I'm going to lay back. It seems like, and it feels to me like, all of these reasons for dysfunctional teams are intermingled. Like, yep. If there's lack of trust, mm-hmm. then people aren't going to be too focused on the results or the yeah. information in the incident. Exactly. What do you think is the most common dysfunction of a team when it comes to incident response? If you would have said what is the most common amongst these four teams in general, I would say trust for sure. But I think... If I had to put my finger on what what teams run into the most, I would say it would be a fear of conflict for one, because if you're brought into an incident, the first thing you think is, oh, snap, did I do something wrong? (laughs) Did I make a mistake? So that might be a concern of folks. But then that might also tie right back to absence of trust, Mm -hmm. because if you're like, oh, did I make a mistake? Oh, I don't want to get in trouble. Knowing that you trust your teammates, you would go into that incident very differently. Even if you knew it was you, you making a mistake, you're like, oh, I messed up. But I, I can trust my team to act in the, the best behavior possible. Right. So you know, like, hey, we're going to go in this war room. We're going to figure it out. I made a mistake. 
but I know we're going to grow from this and there's not going to be like a, a serious repercussion unless I did something illegal or something like that. Right. You know, from my uh, perspective, working on very few incidents, I haven't worked on like major sev one incidents, but mm. from like the sev two to three is inattention to results. Yeah. And I think that is why some incidents just take forever to close out because mm -hmm. we're just so anxious and eager to find out the root cause that you don't necessarily build up the story, mm -hmm. understand the motive as to why this process is running, why this S3 bucket was spun up in the first place. Yeah. And who is it serving? Like, what are the access logs say? What do even the customers say about, you know, this service or function that, that you're providing them? Mm -hmm. What I've seen from the incidents that I've worked on is like a lot of the times, you can't restart servers. Right. You can't take down boxes. You can't rebuild a dynamic function because there's people using it mm -hmm. and you don't know the consequences downstream that would happen. And I think that's, you know, just looking at the the results because maybe the results are coming from your stakeholders or other means that are outside of technology. Mm -hmm. One of the best resources for folks that are looking at either being an incident commander or even just incident response across the board, PagerDuty has a ton mm -hmm. of resources. Uh, we'll definitely put those down into the show notes. But one of the things they talk about is CAN reports. So conditions, actions, and needs. You can have every single one of your SMEs, the people that are the feet to the ground, helping you pull the incident together. Hey, give me a CAN report on X, Y, and Z. So what is the condition? Like, where are we at currently? What actions have you taken or do you need to take? And then what do you need from me in order to be successful? Like, hey, I need the lawyer to give me a thumbs up to say, like, this action is, is OK for us to take. Right. Maybe you have to talk to the dev team like, hey, uh, this is what's going on. This is what I need from you. This is the information I need. So really understanding what does everyone need? What uh, are the actions that you're taking or are the actions you've taken or are about to take? And then what is the condition in which you're operating currently? So my name is Joe. Mm -hmm. I work at a fintech company like yep. me and you used to work at. <laughs> and my job today is to be an incident commander. I'm working mm -hmm. with this team that does not like to listen. And maybe the reason they don't like to listen is because they don't trust each other. But we got this incident where we're dealing with an S3 bucket that's open to the Internet. Mm -hmm. Walk me through what I should do as an incident commander from start to close. As soon as you get all the right people either on the war room or maybe it's in uh, some type of chat channel, you let everyone know, hello, everyone. I'm the incident commander for this particular incident. It's a SEV-1. These are the things we know. I brought you all in for X, Y, and Z. Start asking questions. Mm -hmm. Like, just just go right in. Number one, that sets you up as like, hey, I'm the incident commander for this incident. That's you stepping into your authority. Some people might look at it like, oh, you're using your, bouncing your authority around. And of course, there are going to be the, the folks out there that have that persona. It's like, oh, I love power. I, lo I love all that stuff. But when you're in an incident, you need to be indexing on action. And so sometimes you have to have somebody that's just that, hey, I'm the one that's going to help push this thing forward. You don't have all the context, remember? Mm -hmm. You're not this mega genius that knows all the answers, but you're the one that knows how to bring the right people in and ask the right questions to bring it to closure. Right. So stepping into that power immediately, saying, hey, this is how it's going to be run. And then even if you have to do a little bit of like EQ, like emotional intelligence, because you know that team doesn't have any trust, say like, hey, listen, thank you all for being here, first of all. I want you to know I need all the context for this particular incident. 
in the past we've had issues with X, Y, and Z when it comes to solving incidents. Mm. Here's what we need to do in order to get it to closure. Addressing the elephant in yep. the room. Mm -hmm. Any questions? <laughs> Boom. I love that. I love that. And then you could really see if anybody has any objections to one, you know, you being the incident commander, yep. speak up now, forever hold your peace. Yep. And two, if there's any objections with like what you just described, whether exactly. it's the incident itself, needing the context yep. on it, or the fact that, hey, there has been miscommunication in the past. Like, does anybody want to address that in the start so you can move on successfully? Mm -hmm, 100%. Even if it comes to making little decisions, you gather all your context and you say as the incident commander, uh, this is what we're doing. We're going to you know, reset the, the server. We're going to take the server down. Uh, we are going to uh, bring in an incident response team. Mm -hmm. Does anyone have any objections? Because sometimes people have an objection and say, like, this is the dumbest idea ever, and I have a great idea, but they didn't ask me, so I'm not saying anything. Yeah. By saying, hey, does anyone have any objections, and no one says anything, and then in the post-incident review, like, well, I didn't think we should have done X, Y, and Z, well, then you should have had the, the trust in me as the incident commander to be able to bring those situations to my attention, mm -hmm. right? So then that's another opportunity to grow as a team and grow in your process. Who is allowed into the war room? I've seen uh, sometimes incidents be very secretive. Like yep. no one's allowed in because it might deal with money. It might deal with damages to the company. Mm -hmm. How do you know who's allowed to be there? So there's two problems on that spectrum. There's that problem where, oh, well, let's keep it hush-hush and secretive. I've been in situations where it's like, oh, we can't tell anyone about this in the company. I'm like... There are a lot of people that might have context for this particular incident. Sure, there might be sensitivities because you might have a 10,000-person company. You don't want to broadcast to everyone. But sometimes you bring in too many people. When you bring in too many people, like we were talking about before, then that incident gets really expensive. Some teams will even calculate the cost of an incident based on the amount of time that someone's in a particular war room. Right. As the incident commander, you have the power to bring people in, you have the power to kick people out, especially if they're not contributing to the incident resolution. Right. How do you know uh, when it's time to close? Like, you know, this guy, Joe, he's been following all of these set of steps. He's aware of the dysfunctional team um, mm -hmm. attributes. But the big thing is like, you know, the common goal is working to closure. Yeah. How do you know when it's done? Think about it like a story. Like if you have a, a story that, that is done end to end, you know that, hey, this is how it started. This is how it went. And this is the closure. Like we, we've either solved the incident, we remediated, or maybe there's all the recovery, but not all the remediation. You could say, hey, I'm going to consider this incident closed. Mm -hmm. What usually happens is you bring an incident to stable. Like we stopped the bleeding. Yep. We need to continue the investigation. So an incident could go on for weeks after in the stable, because you're still trying to figure out what exactly happened in the beginning to, for this all to begin, you might uh, move it to stable, but you need to figure out what to do next. So you stop the bleeding. So that's uh, the most important thing. But sometimes you can go to closure relatively quickly. And then that's when you can move into something like a post-incident review. I think that's the big thing is like sometimes the incident might not be closed, but the severity is changed. Like yep. no, This is no longer severity one because we've stopped the bleeding. It's no longer an issue, but maybe it will just take time to put in the, the fix, the mm -hmm. resolution, upgrading a server, rebuilding a Lambda function maybe. Yep. Uh, that could just take time. Uh, with the post-incident review, be after that is done or would it be before the incident is fully closed out? I've seen it done a couple different ways. 
But I think that the best time to do a, a post-incident review is when it's completely closed. Mm. You could do one where when it's, I guess, along stable. I think you really have to figure out what is the threshold for going from stable to close. Because right. there might be remediation things that could take months. So you don't want to have like 50,000 incidents that are at the stable and you haven't closed any of them out. <laughs> that I think that wouldn't be scalable. Yeah. But I think the best case is do the post-incident review after the complete closure of the incident. Love it. What's that one piece of advice that you would give to someone who is really just trying to be the best incident commander that they can be? Constantly put yourself in situations that causes you to think and ask questions about a situation. Mm -hmm. Like doing things like on Fridays, you know, playing a wheel of misfortune. Uh, constantly even going through your own mind, like, what would I do if I had to answer the X, Y, and Z? Another thing is uh, backdoors and breaches. Uh, yeah. You know, we're good friends with the folks from Black Hills. Uh, they have an awesome card game out there that you can walk through like, hey, you know, oh, this is the information I got. So how am I going to bring this incident to closure? I would say working towards closure, working towards analyzing data, and then asking the right questions, I think is the most important thing you could do to be the best incident commander. Oh, yeah. And for anyone that is looking for more advice, I always recommend joining a community, mm -hmm. finding a group of people that have like minded uh, thoughts as you that have a similar career path and connect with them. We actually have our own community that we would love to invite you to. It is a discord community. You can find it at hackervalley.com forward slash discord. And we would love to see you there and be the best instant commander that you can be. And with that, we'll see everyone next time.